Je m'appelle Luke. And I'm John. Wait a minute, why are you speaking French? We're not doing bloody hello hello again, are we? It's because I've just received a reply from the EBU, the people who arranged the Eurovision Song Contest. A reply to what? I wrote to them asking if Cracking TV could produce a Eurovision final in the future. Bloody hell, Luke, Eurovision costs a fortune. It nearly bankrupted RTE. I know, but Cracking TV is going to be a huge success and will be rolling in cash. What does the letter say? Oh my god, it's great news. They say they'd love us to produce a Eurovision final. We better start saving up then. Um, What is it? It says there's been a bit of an issue. They'd like us to produce the 2023 Eurovision final. Bloody hell, Luke, that's in a few days. They spent their whole lives watching TV. Now they're sharing their opinions with you. Because now they want to have some fun. With a channel that is all brand new. Get comfy and without further ado. They'll choose the shows that you want to view. It's time to change the channel too. Luke and John Cracking TV Luke and John Cracking TV Okay, this is stressful. We've got to immediately put together the ultimate Eurovision show for Cracking TV. Well, luckily, thanks to the magic of Cracking TV, we can call upon the best bits of any era to help make it a success. Well, that doesn't actually make any sense. I know, but it's the entire premise of this podcast, so we better go with it. Okay, well, look, I'm not convinced it's a good idea for Cracking TV to produce Eurovision. It's a huge financial risk. I tell you what, let's try our best to design the ultimate Eurovision show. And if you're convinced that it will be a success, we'll go ahead and produce it. And if I'm not convinced? As per the format, I have to leave the Kraken TV office in ignominy and disgrace. That's not enough jeopardy for this time. Okay, then I have to get a UKIP to two on my chest. Well, that seems worth it. So we need a list of the essential elements that you have to have to create the ultimate Eurovision show. Well, firstly, we need a UK entry that can win. We need an amazing host city. Yeah, we need the all-time greatest Eurovision presenters. And we need a classic song, not necessarily one from the UK, not necessarily a winner, but just a brilliant song by any standard. But we should also have some songs with a memorable performance that adds to the legacy and mythology of Eurovision. We need a mind-blowing interval act. And an exciting vote overseen by an executive supervisor. Oh, of course. And, of course, we need a brilliant commentator who can put their own spin on the show and make it entertaining even when the songs and performances are quite bad. I'm starting to realise it's quite an undertaking. And I'm starting to design your UKIP tattoo. Nice. But before we start to put together the essential elements of our show, we should take a moment to look at how the Eurovision Song Contest came to exist. Okay. Before each contest starts, we hear this famous tune, the adopted anthem of the EBU, the European Broadcasting Union. That's the prelude from Te Deum by Marc-Antoine Charpentier. How cultured for our show. So the Eurovision Song Contest is by far the most famous Eurovision broadcast, but it's far from the only activity of the EBU. Right, yeah. The EBU was formed in 1950, but what's the connection between the EBU and 40 Towers? Hotels in Torquay, maybe? Was it formed in a hotel in Torquay? It was formed in a hotel in Torquay. Well done. Thank you. 
So the inaugural meeting of the EBU was hosted by the BBC at the Imperial Hotel in Torquay. Nice. And the aim was to share programmes, presumably in an early BBC cost-cutting measure, and also to share knowledge. Many technical standards used in broadcasting have been agreed via the EBU. Okay. The first use of the term Eurovision was by BBC press officer George Campy in the London Evening Standard in 1951, and he was talking about a BBC programme being shown in the Netherlands. Right. He was subsequently told off because the official BBC term wasn't Eurovision, it was Continental Television Exchange. (laughs) That's snappy. Can you imagine if we had the Continental Television Exchange song contest? I don't think that would have been a success. Wouldn't have caught on. The first official Eurovision broadcast was on the 6th of June 1954 from Montreux, and it featured coverage of the Narcissus Festival, a parade of floats covered in flowers and yodelers. (laughs) And it was followed by a 90-minute guided tour of the Vatican, which finished with the Pope talking about the dangers of television in Latin. That's a golden age of TV right there. Yes. Over a month, 18 programmes were exchanged, and this included nine from the Football World Cup being held in Switzerland. From those beginnings, the Eurovision network is now used daily to exchange content between member broadcasters. That's really interesting. I think lots of us think of Eurovision just being the name of a song contest, but fundamentally what it is is this network that is used for exchanging programmes all the time. Exactly. The Eurovision Song Contest itself was first held on the 24th of May 1956 in Lugano, Switzerland, and it was inspired by the San Remo Music Festival, first held in 1951. Right. There were seven countries in that first contest, Belgium, France, Germany, Italy, Luxembourg, Netherlands and Switzerland. Not the UK? No, the BBC did broadcast the first contest, but they were too busy organising their own contest the Festival of British Popular Songs, to take part. Oh, fair enough. The BBC was also inspired by the San Remo Festival, and in both shows, each song was performed twice in different styles, as the emphasis was on the song, not the performance. That is absolutely amazing. They should keep doing that now. But can you imagine how long the show would last if they made you perform it twice? It would take all night. Maybe they should just go for the uh, Clive Anderson whose line is it anyway style and he buzzes in to get you to change style. (laughs) Midway through the song. That would be amazing. Instead of just doing hard rock hallelujah, you should have to change it into country music hallelujah or reggae hallelujah halfway through the song. Now, the first Eurovision, each country performed two songs, and the BBC joined 45 minutes late and only broadcast the second song from each country. Luckily, the winning song was from the second half. Oh, that worked out nicely. I wonder if there was a bit of gerrymandering going on backstage to ensure that result. Well, I wouldn't like to say. But no voting procedure was shown on TV. There was no scoreboard on TV. They just announced who'd won. That is incredible. That's so 1950s that the audience would just be expected to take it on faith that their betters had somehow, through some mechanism, decided which was the winning song. But actually, on the BBC show, they did go round all the BBC regional centres to get scores. And that was the inspiration for Eurovision adopting that format from the following year. Oh, OK. So basically, they mashed up what the BBC had done for its UK song contest with the first Eurovision song contest. And together, that became the format going forward. Yeah, exactly. And the winner of that first Eurovision song contest was Refrains by Liz Asia, And she represented Switzerland, conveniently the country that was hosting. Oh, well done, Switzerland. Yeah. Okay, so that's how Eurovision came to be, but we need to create our show that we're going to produce. First of all, let's start with the UK entry. Well, fundamentally, we need the United Kingdom to have a great song, and the Eurovision season starts when we select our song for Europe. 
Who can forget Joe and Jake in 2016 with You're Not Alone? You're Alone, I can't remember that at all. What about Molly with Children of the Universe in 2014? Still Just You. Nicky French and Don't Play That Song Again? I don't think anyone ever did play that song again, I can't remember it at all. Look, it's easy to be cynical, but the UK has won five times. Let's pick a UK winner as our entry to maximise our chances of hearing those magic words. Royaume-Uni, 12 points. Royaume-Uni, 12 points. United Kingdom, 12 points. So the first time the UK won was in 1967 with Sandy Shaw and Puppet on a String. Very catchy, very cheesy. Yeah, Sandy famously performed barefooted and now runs a clinic called Barefoot Therapy. Well, I'm just going to put it right out there from the start that I don't like Puppet on a String very much. I think it's unlikely that that's going to be our entry. What else have you got? Okay, well, how about we move forward two years to 1969 and Lulu with Boom Bang a Bang. Now that's more like it. This is a bit of classic Eurovision style cheese. It's absolutely classic Eurovision cheese. And actually, in 1969, there was a four-way tie because there was no rule for how to resolve ties at that point. That makes it slightly less impressive, maybe, that it was one of four winners that year? The other winners were France, Netherlands and Spain. Okay, well, I'm not sure about Lulu then, to be honest, on that basis. Well, maybe Brotherhood of Man, Save Your Kisses For Me, Will Float Your Boat. That was our winner in 1976. Well, that's got an interesting gimmick because there's a twist at the end of the lyrics. Yes. Save all your kisses for me, and at the end it's revealed, even though you're only three. It's revealed they're singing to their little kid. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a very cheesy twist, but at least it's something, right? It's something different and unexpected. And it has the dance moves. Yeah, very nice dance moves. They must have been quite young people, the Brotherhood of Man, but the male members in particular look proper middle-aged, don't they? Yeah, they're probably younger than we are now, and yet they look older. Undoubtedly, undoubtedly, yeah. But six million copies of that single were sold worldwide, making it the highest-selling Eurovision winner ever. That's very surprising. I know. And it also holds the record for relative highest score, so I'm taking into account that the number of countries has increased you know, as the years have gone by. But the average score for that song is 9.65, that's out of 12, per jury. Well, the Europeans just really love that Brotherhood of Man sound. Yeah. Not exactly cutting-edge music for 1976, but this is one of the things about Eurovision. It's not always something particularly contemporary that tickles the judges' fancy, is it? No, it's a whole range of factors. And how about we move on to 1981 and Buck's Fizz making your mind up? Surprised you didn't test me on the year there, but yeah, 1981. I knew you'd get it wrong. (laughs) So of all the UK's Eurovision winners, this has to be the one that most sticks in the memory. Well, talk about having a gimmick. Everyone remembers Bobby G and Mike Nolan ripping the skirts off Cheryl Baker and Jay Aston to reveal even shorter skirts underneath. Definitely not the sort of thing you would do nowadays, but there's no doubt it caught the imagination of viewers and it's stuck in all of our minds for decades. And it brought home the wonders of Velcro to households all over Europe. Bucks Fizz are in with a very strong chance of being our contender. Just before you decide for certain, our last winner was Katrina and the Ways with Love Shine a Light in 1997. Now, one issue with this is Katrina's not British, is she? No, she's from Kansas. But you don't have to be represented by somebody from your own country. Exactly. You know, Olivia Newton-John has represented the UK. Celine Dion represented Switzerland. Famously, and she won in 1988. But yeah, so Katrina and the Waves, they were previously best known for their 1985 single Walking on Sunshine. They won't do anything without shine in the title. That's their rule, isn't it? 
five winners overall, which one are you going to pick? I'm going to have to go for Bucks Fizz. We're going to make our minds up and pick Bucks Fizz. Very nice, yeah. So next we need to choose our host city. Yeah. Eurovision is supposedly happening in Liverpool this year, but due to some mishap or other, we've got a blank sheet of paper and we can host it anywhere, right? Yeah, but I guess we'll host it in the UK. We'll host it somewhere in the UK, but we need to choose the city. So let's talk about the UK cities that have hosted it to date and see if any of them would be a better choice than Liverpool. So the prize for winning Eurovision is to get to host the following year, and we've hosted four times as a result of winning, but we've also hosted four times when the previous winner didn't want to host the contest, usually because they decided they couldn't afford it. Right. The first time the BBC was going to host would have been in 1958, but they couldn't agree terms with various unions, so the BBC had to pull out of hosting, but it also pulled out of taking part. Oh, wow. But the first time the BBC did end up hosting was in 1960, and that was from the Royal Festival Hall in London. Right. And it was hosted by Katie Boyle. Okay. The Netherlands had won in 1959, but they had declined to host because they'd also hosted in 1958. Right, okay. The second time the BBC hosted was in 1963, again from London, but this time from the newly built Television Centre. Oh, cool. France had won in 1962, but declined hosting it after previously hosting in 1959 and 1961. Makes sense. It was again hosted by Katie Boyle. Oh, second time for Katie Boyle. Second time Katie. And she and the audience and the scoreboard were in Studio TC3, while the performers and orchestra were in TC4. Okay. So 1968 was the third time the BBC hosted, and this was the first time after winning the previous year, Sandy Shaw, as we just heard. Again in London, this time the Royal Albert Hall. Right, so three times in a row for London. And three times in a row for Katie Boyle. Katie Boyle doing it for a third time? Yeah, and she's the only person to host more than twice. Wow, okay. 1968 was the first Eurovision in colour, but BBC One didn't go colour until 1969 so it was repeated in colour on BBC Two the next day. I wonder how many people watched it both times. Well, if I'd been alive in 1968, I would have done. Oh, yeah, of course you would have done. The next time we hosted was in 1972, and it moved out of London this time. Oh, good. To Edinburgh and the Usher Hall. Monaco had won in 1971, but they didn't have a suitable venue. Right. So who do you think hosted in 1972? Katie Boyle? It was not Katie Boyle. Oh, damn. It was Scottish ballet dancer Moira Shearer. Oh, fair enough. And the voting was done at Edinburgh Castle. 1974 next. Do you know where it was hosted in 1974? I do. This is famous because this is the year of ABBA and Waterloo. So that was in Brighton, wasn't it, at the Brighton Dome? It was. And who do you think hosted? I'm hoping for Katie Boyle. Come on, Katie Boyle. It's Katie Boyle. Her fourth time. That is incredible. Yeah. Well done, Katie Boyle. Yeah. She must have had something about her. Or she had something on the DG. <laughs> so Luxembourg won in 1972 and 1973, but they didn't want the expense of a second show in succession. That seems fair enough. Luxembourg's a small country. Probably hosting Eurovision is the whole of their GDP. Yeah. And they haven't taken part in Eurovision in years. So they, they've just completely given up on the contest. Right. 1974 was the first time that they broadcast rehearsal or behind-the-scenes footage as part of the postcards that they show between the songs while the stage is reset. Yep. And in 1974, Italian broadcaster Rai didn't broadcast the show on their main channel because the contest coincided with the 1974 Italian referendum on divorce. One of the songs was called C, and there was a worry it could be seen as a subliminal message. Wow, they were taking it very seriously. Very seriously indeed. Our next time hosting was 1977, and you'll be pleased to know it returned to London, to the Wembley Conference Centre this time, 
Any idea who hosted? I've got to be having my fingers crossed for Katie Boyle again. Well, I'm afraid it was Angela Rippon. I mean, no offence to Angela Rippon, but Katie Boyle must have been the world expert at hosting Eurovision by this point. Well, yes. And actually, 1977 is widely regarded as being a slightly shambolic Eurovision. Angela, you amateur! I'm not sure it was entirely Angela's fault. Katie Boyle would have known what she was doing. (laughs) This isn't the news. This is Eurovision. Well, it was just a few months after her seminal Morecambe and Wise appearance. So she was a light entertainment star now. Exactly. Now, the 1977 contest was actually delayed by a month due to a BBC technician strike. Okay, this is the 70s for you. Yes. The postcards between the songs were dropped. At the time, they sort of said this was because of the strike, though it turns out that's not the real story. Postcards were filmed at a London nightclub. The Norwegian delegation objected to how their artist was represented. Allegedly, she was drunk and dancing on the tables. Oh, I see. There was no time to edit new postcards. They had to drop all of them for all artists. And between songs, there were just shots of the audience. The audience were expected to keep clapping for two minutes whilst the stage was reset. (laughs) Wow. I mean, I can't believe in 1977 anybody would have been offended at the idea of a pop star having some drinks and dancing on a table, for goodness sake. Well, who knows? The scoring was all over the place. There were many errors and a corrected scoreboard had to be issued after the event. Luckily, it didn't change the winner, though. Right, OK. It's also notable for talkback from director Stuart Morris that has leaked onto the internet. Oh, right. So would you like to hear a bit of that? Let's have it. So I should just set the clip up. It's the end of the show and it's the reprise of the winning song. What you need to know is that the stage featured a revolve and the end credits are run from a caption roller, creating some confusion. And cue the revolve. Cue the revolve. Stop the roller. Get the roller back. Get the roller back. Bloody idiot. <laughs> Where's the defo? I don't want bloody page off. Do it. Defocus. Defocus. Go down. Out one. Out. Out. Run roller. Run the roller. Run the roller! Run the roller! Run the caption roller! Run the... Oh, run it! The roller on six! Roller on six! Fast! Run it! (laughs) I feel for him, man. That's what I used to sound like when I was doing live gallery producing on shopping channels. Instead of a roller, I'd be talking about a nine-carat curb chain or a toaster. (laughs) The pressures of live television. Run the toaster! Show the kettle! (laughs) After 1977, the next time we hosted was 1982. Okay. Do you know where it came from in 1982? I'm going to guess we weren't doing London again, so I'm going to say Birmingham. Not Birmingham, Harrogate. Oh, right, okay. I could have sat here all day guessing UK locations and not landed on Harrogate. No offence to Harrogate. It's a perfectly lovely place, but it's not the thriving hub of the UK broadcast industry, is it? Brand new conference centre had just opened in Harrogate. Right, And the opening sequence knowingly featured captions saying, where is Harrogate in the language of all the participating countries? Right, okay, so they were playing with it a bit. Yeah. They continued with the newsreader theme for the host. Okay, who was it this time? Trevor MacDonald? Jan Leeming. Okay. And in 1982, French broadcaster TF1 pulled out. Their head of entertainment said, the absence of talent and the mediocrity of the songs is where the annoyance sets in. Eurovision is a monument to insanity. I mean, fair enough. It's hosted in Harrogate and Katie Boyle's not even there. That's the definition of insanity. (laughs) 
well, maybe you'd prefer Birmingham because it did get staged in Birmingham in 1998. Right, that must be what I was thinking about. So it's presented by Terry Wogan and Ulrika Johnson. Bonsoir, mesdames et messieurs. Bienvenue à 43e concours Eurovision de la chanson en direct to the National Indoor Arena of Birmingham. Okay. Okay, so I learned it off by heart. I love it when you speak French. Yes, indeed. Alors, regardez plus attentivement encore le concours, car ce soir, pour la première fois, la plupart d'entre vous pourra voter pour, par téléphone pour la chanson que vous souhaitez voir gagner. Now, as I'm sure you picked up from Ulrika there, this was the first contest where televoting was the primary way of picking the winner. I did do A-level French, so I could hear her saying something about that. It was also the last contest where you had to sing in your own language. Now, that had happened before a bit, hadn't it? Like, Abba sang Waterloo in English. Yeah, there was a brief period in the mid-70s where the language rule was dropped, but it came back, and then 98 was the last year of it being the permanent rule. And that does tend to mean lots of entries being sung in English, right? Absolutely. Did you ever used to do that thing of putting 888 subtitles on so you could read the translations with the lyrics? Oh, yes. Because I remember in uh, 1995 watching it at my friend's house and we had the subtitles on. The Russian song, it was a song about a volcano and the lyric said, Don't recall your fearful past. Cover yourself, please, with grass. <laughs> and we found this so profoundly moving that if any of us ever got angry with each other after that, we'd go, cover yourself, please, with grass. Nice. <laughs> 1998 was also the last contest to feature an orchestra for the competing songs. Up until that point, every song, there had to be an orchestral arrangement. Every single song. So even if it was a rap song like Love City Groove, there'd have to be an orchestra involved. Even on Love City Groove. Wow. And there you go. London, Edinburgh, Brighton, Harrogate and Birmingham have hosted Eurovision, but can any of them beat Liverpool? I'm going to have to allow it to go to Liverpool. I think it's an amazing city. It's going to have a great party atmosphere. It's well known for its connections with music. But will we be able to have Katie Boyle hosting it? Well, sadly, she did die in 2018. Yeah, but that's okay. Terry Wogan's dead too, and I'm sure we'll have him in contention to be our commentator. Well, that is true. And we do need to choose a presenter, but I'm not sure it'll be Katie in spite of her consummate professionalism. Okay. There have been some memorable hosts down the years, and here are just a few for you. In 1985, Lil Lindfor hosted for Sweden. Right. She had represented the country in 1966 and came back to host nearly 20 years later. During the show, she appeared to have a wardrobe malfunction as she caught her dress on the set, ripping it at the waist. Oh no. She calmly unfastened part of the top half to reveal a brand new dress. Oh, that's incredible. The entire gag was unrehearsed. She and the director were basically in on it, and apparently the EBU were really annoyed afterwards. <laughs> Fair play to them, that's really clever. Yeah. We fast forward to 2001, and the show is being hosted in Copenhagen, and this year the host spoke entirely in rhyming couplets. Oh god, that must have got irritating. I mean, it started irritating, and they were ridiculed by Wogan throughout the whole show. He labelled them Dr. Death and the Tooth Fairy. <laughs> so, no boring details tonight. C'est soir. Okay by me. Okay pour moi. C'est tout? Oui. Let's go. On with the show. Let's start the music. Let's start the fun. The, the Eurovision Song Contest 2001. Not before time. I mean, that's just the beginning. Crikey. The Danish complained to the BBC about Wogan, 
and he was forced to apologise. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. 2013, we're in Malmo, Sweden, and Petra Mirda is hosting. Now, Petra is incredibly funny. She's got perfect comic timing. She can speak Swedish, English, Spanish, Italian, and French. Okay, she sounds like a really good candidate. She hosted it really well. She could sing. She did the interval act, which we'll talk about in a bit. Absolutely stunning. And then Sweden hosted again just three years later, and they got Petra back. She was so good. Right. This time she hosted with Mon Zemelo. He'd won in 2015 with Heroes, one of the modern classics of Eurovision. And that pairing of Petra and Mons was absolutely incredible. And they are now seen as the standard that any Eurovision hosts are going to be compared to. My name is Mons Zemelo, or as most people call me after winning the Eurovision, the King of Pop. Do they? Really? Not so much. But maybe you could. Uh, I, I really prefer not to. I might not be a Eurovision-winning international sex symbol, but at least I'm still, you know, Pietra Meda. Yes, you are. You truly are the best and the most devoted audience in the world. Yes, you are. And, I might add, the most respectful audience in the world. I was at a Eurovision party last night, surrounded by fans, and none of the guys came on to me. Was it the same for you, Mons? Well, any, anyway. <laughs> Good old Swedes. Yeah, I think it's no coincidence that three of our memorably hosted years are from Sweden. Yeah, they really take Eurovision seriously, don't they? They do. Well, they certainly take the song part of Eurovision seriously. Every year they run their selection contest, Melody Festivalen, and it's one of the biggest shows on Swedish television running over five or six weeks. Wow. But then you look at the presentation. They take the piss out of themselves and they take the piss out of the song contest. They seriously do irony. Terry summed it up after Lille's wardrobe malfunction. They've got a knockabout sense of humour, the Swedes, haven't they? <laughs> knockabout sense of humour, yeah. And there's a lovely little bit in the 2013 Interval Act about what does it mean to be Swedish. Someone interrupts a high-level meeting holding a dirty mug and it cuts to the Prime Minister of Sweden. It doesn't matter who you are, the same rules apply to everyone. We have three main concerns to discuss Someone with you. Someone forgot to put this coffee cup in the dishwasher. Oh, it says Fredrik on it. Maybe it's yours, Fredrik. But the dishwasher was full. So you empty it. Your mother doesn't work here, Mr. Prime Minister. Okay, you have to excuse me. I, I must attend to this. Third time this week? What if Angela Merkel comes? <laughs> Very nice. So only three people have hosted more than once. Katie Boyle, Petra Mirda and Jacqueline Joubert. She hosted in 1959 and 1961 for France. But who do you think should host our show? Big fan of Katie Boyle that I am. I think it's going to have to be Mons and Petra, isn't it? I think that's right. Okay, so we've got our hosts and we need to talk about some of the songs that have been on Eurovision over the years. Well, it is a song contest. Exactly right. So we've decided that Book Spheres will be the UK entry, but we also want Eurovision's biggest banger in there. Shouldn't that be Eurovision's biggest boom banger banger? That feels like a pre-prepared joke to me, Luke. So let me pitch to you what I think are some of the best Eurovision songs of all time, and you can choose one of them and make sure it's definitely represented in Cracking TV's Eurovision final. Okay. So first of all, I'm going to pitch you Satellite by Lena. Good song. This is Germany's entry from 2010. 
Very infectious pop tune, very cool, sort of understated production, quite sparse drums and rhythm guitar, but done in a really cool pop way. Now, she's a German singer singing in English, but she's doing almost a sort of Lily Allen style singing. Yeah. Sometimes her voice is straying into Mockney. I did it just the other day. Die. But it's got a tremendous charm. I always like the bit where she says, I even bought new underwear, day blue. <laughs> yeah. um, it was a hugely successful song right across Europe, even before it got to the Eurovision final. So by the time it came around, it was red hot favourite to win and it performed exceedingly well in the night. But if it comes to a Eurovision song that I'd just like to put on in my headphones and listen to to this day, I think that would be right up there. It's a song we've done at karaoke together. Exactly right, yeah. My next pitch, also one that I'm happy to listen to to this day, is Euphoria by Loreen. Oh, yes. So that's Sweden's entry from 2012. A real banger, a big techno tune. Got to number three in the UK charts, which is the highest chart position for any non-UK Eurovision song since Hold Me Now by Johnny Logan in 1987, which I hate. Yeah, I do too. But I think Euphoria is probably the song that showed that Eurovision had really changed direction. Yeah. It is a genuinely, genuinely decent banging dance tune. Fantastic bit of contemporary pop music from 2012, yeah. Yeah. One of the songs that I think helped to usher in that era of contemporary dance music is, okay, it's a little bit cheesy, but the UK's entry from 1996, Gina G, who are just a little bit. Classic. We did choose earlier between winning UK entries, and this one didn't win. In fact, it only came eighth, but I think it's a really good song. It's still the most recent Eurovision number one in the UK charts. We haven't had a Eurovision number one since 1996. And Sam Ryder didn't go to number one. No, that was a big number two. But I really think Gina G deserved to do better than eighth. She didn't perform brilliantly on the night, but it's such a good song. It's a great song. And that era of Eurovision, 95, 96, 97, it's a really interesting set of songs for the UK. 95 was Love City Groove, introducing rap to the Eurovision stage. Shall we? Go on. In the morning, when the sun shines down on my body. I know we're really making love now. Now, baby, baby, when I first saw your face, I saw you had flavour and I wanted a taste of this sweet thing. And now there's so much more because every day I'm thinking about what my baby has in store. Trust and believe day to day you never doubt her, but I used to have a dream girl, but now I found her and she's by my side. She's my pride, my all. Ten foot tall, that's how I feel. I never fall, I never fell, oh, what the hell? I'll admit it, love was the target and you hit it. So as I watch you sleep in the middle of the night, you open your eyes and I know it's so right. Two hearts, two minds, two people, one love. And the way you make me feel, it's like you're sent from up above. Your touch, your smell, your face, unique breed. It's only love, but it's all that I need. <laughs> what an incredible flow, Luke. And you must be the only person in the world who's got that memorised. I bet the original rapper still wouldn't be able to do that now. So that was Love City Groove in 1995. And then you had Gina G with this great dance number, completely blowing Eurovision styling out of the water. Yeah. We were talking about the orchestra. So even on that song, the orchestra played a tiny bit. Wow. The rule at the time was that where you were using a backing track, you had to represent instruments on stage. So they stuck a couple of computers on stage. <laughs> and then, of course, the following year, you had Love Shine a Light, which won. Yeah. The BBC were very deliberately trying to change Eurovision with those three songs. It did feel in that era that the UK was taking Eurovision seriously and trying to do better year on year and then reached the crest of the Katrina and the Waves in 1997. Yeah. 
We finished second then, didn't we, in 1998? But yeah. from 1999 onwards, it absolutely fell apart. Scooch and Gemini. Daz Sampson. Daz Sampson, yeah. We had some awful entries over those years. We really did. I've got one more pitch for you for an all-time great Eurovision song. Oh, yeah. This is Domenico Modugno from 1958. It was the Italian entry. It only came third, and it's a song called Nel Blu, Dipinto di Blu which listeners might not know under that title, but they will know it under the title with which Dean Martin had a huge hit, Volare. Oh, yes. An absolute classic 20th century pop song. Totally. And if you aggregate all of the sales that the covers of it have had, its claim to fame is that it's the most successful Eurovision song ever. It's sold way more than any other song. Yeah, I mean, it's massively famous. And it's just incredible that it came from Eurovision and that it only got to third. And I don't think people realise it came from Eurovision. No, certainly not. So what do you think then, Volare, who are just a little bit, Euphoria or Satellite? I mean, there's obviously a place for all four of them, but if I can only have one, I would go for Euphoria. Okay. I think it's the song, perhaps more than any other, that has showed Eurovision can be contemporary and thrilling musically. Great. So Euphoria is in. We've missed many songs out there because the Eurovision Song Contest has been going for a very long time and it has many, many entries every year. So clearly there's a lot to choose from. But those were selections of the very best songs. But I also think we should throw another one in on the basis of how memorable or important it was. So I've got some of those to pitch as well. Okay. So first of all, we've got Israel's entry from 1998, Diva by Dana International. Not to be confused with Dana, the Republic of Ireland entry, who won with all kinds of everything in 1970. Indeed, not to be confused with Dana at all. No, this is from 1998, and one of the reasons why it was a really notable performance was Donna International was a trans woman. Yeah. And for a trans artist to win Eurovision in 1998 would have been a huge deal, whichever country she'd come from. But to win for Israel, which was a country which had some very conservative elements in it, was absolutely extraordinary. Israel had only legalised same-sex sexual activity about 10 years before that. So for them to have a trans artist as their entry into Eurovision and then to win really showed a huge degree of progression in LGBTQ plus recognition in that country. Absolutely. And of course, 1998 was the year that it was hosted in Birmingham. So that song is very associated with the UK. Yeah. One of the things that was quite funny when she was announced as the winner, she kept Terry and Ulrika waiting. It was one of the most embarrassing moments. But, you know, she is a diva. So viva la diva. Viva la diva indeed. Mind you, it was more embarrassing the following year when in trying to hand over the trophy, she fell over. (laughs) Another diva then was Austria's entry in 2014, Conchita Wurst, with Rise Like a Phoenix. Yes. Conchita is the alias of Thomas Newworth. Now, he's not trans, he's a gay man and a drag queen, but the persona of Conchita Verse should be referred to as she. And she's a very striking pop star. She's a beautiful woman with a closely cropped beard, very striking image. And how else would a really iconic LGBTQ figure like that reach such a wide audience? Surely only Eurovision could do that. Well, absolutely. I mean, it's the most watched non-sports broadcast in the world, so yes. Yeah. And you're not going to see that in a football match. You're not. Now, if I'm honest, I was never a huge fan of the song, but then her acceptance speech, I mean, I was practically in tears watching it. Do you have any words at all? I do. This night is dedicated to everyone who believes in a future of peace and freedom. You know who you are. We are unity. And we are unstoppable. 
Well, that's quite beautiful. Yeah, it was a beautiful, beautiful moment. And the following year, she sang the song with the backing of the ORF Radio Symphony Orchestra, and it was stunning. Well, I'm going to go from there to a completely different style. I'm going to pitch you Hard Rock Hallelujah by Lordy. Oh, yes. This was Finland's entry from 2006. It scored a massive 292 points. And it's particularly notable because of the style of music. It is hard rock. It's a band wearing monster costumes. They've got a two-headed battle axe. They've got wings like bats. There's pyrotechnics and there's this blistering guitar music. It's really unlike any other Eurovision Song Contest winner before or since. It's totally unique. And you sort of see it referenced year after year. It's gone down as one of the most iconic moments in Eurovision. Absolutely. And it's a song that the non-hardcore fans remember. Totally. It's stuck in all of our heads. Yeah. The final one I'm going to pitch you is the one that some people will think I should have pitched as the best song. I don't think it is the best song, but it's undoubtedly super important. It's Sweden's entry from 1974. I'm not sure if you've ever heard it. It's a little song called Waterloo from a little band called ABBA. It rings a bell. (laughs) It's a glorious bit of rock and roll flavoured pop. It's the song that launched a pop phenomenon, one of the greatest and most successful bands of all time. Now, Waterloo is far from being ABBA's crowning achievement because their achievements are so great. Personally, I'd go for Lay All Your Love On Me or The Name Of The Game or SOS, but I wouldn't fight you if you chose Dancing Queen or The Day Before You Came or Knowing Me, Knowing You or The Winner Takes It All or One Of Us or Voulez-Vous. They've got loads of great songs, absolutely, but without Waterloo, would any of that happen? It's the start of something legendary. Absolutely. So if you've got to choose between Waterloo, Hard Rock, Hallelujah, Rise Like a Phoenix and Diva, and you can only have one, which one are you going to go for? It is a very difficult choice. There's some really iconic songs there, but I suppose there is only one I can pick really, isn't there? It's got to be Waterloo. I think you're right. I think that's got to be in there. Another key part of Eurovision is the staging accompanying the songs. And over the years, there have been some interesting creative choices. Yeah. How many of these do you remember? I'll start with a couple where you won't remember them because you weren't even born. But the first use of a prop was in 1957 when Margot Heischler, representing Germany, sang a song called Telephone, Telephone. Can you guess what the prop would have been? Was it a telephone? It was a telephone. Radical. That song finished in fourth place. And then the following year, she came back and this time she was waving vinyl records in the air. Okay, she was a pioneer though, I suppose, if she was the first person doing something a little bit different. Absolutely. Let's get a bit more recent. In 2005, Moldova, represented by Zob Zizub, played Bunica Bate Tobe, or Grandma Beats the Drum, and Grandma was on stage beating her drum. I do remember that, yes. I remember exactly what that looked like. Yeah. In 2008, Sebastian Tellier represented France with Divine. He drove a golf cart on stage and inhaled helium from a balloon. (laughs) Yeah, I remember that too. In 2010, Moldova again, this time the Sunstroke Project, That featured the epic sax guy. Oh, I don't remember him. What was his deal? He was playing the sax, or rather miming playing the sax, and he's become a bit of an internet meme. Right, because he was overdoing it a bit. Yeah. In 2012, Russian grannies were baking bread as part of a party for everybody. I remember that very well. And was that the same year when Jedward did something quite cool as well? Yeah, so Jedward had a song called Waterline. I mean, it's a terrible song, but they had a fountain on stage and they jumped in it. Right, they were representing Ireland, weren't they, for the second time? Yeah, it was their follow-up to Lipstick. 
2014, Ukraine had a song called TikTok, and that featured a bloke in a hamster wheel. Right, yeah, remember that. And the Polish entry, We Are Slavic. Yes. Mm, Featured milkmaids. Yes. Churning butter. Yes. With Mm close-ups of, well... How is it possible to broadcast that in 2014? Only nine years ago. I mean, it would not happen now. You'd hope not. But yeah, that was absolutely incredible. 2015, we had a song that actually came last with Nullpoir, the Austrian entry, but it featured a burning piano. Were they just setting fire to the piano that the miserable song was composed upon? (laughs) You'd hope so, yes. (laughs) In 2019, the Australian entry featured the singer on a five-metre-high swaying pole. Australia, famous European country, of course. Absolutely. But yes, I do remember that high-swaying pole, yeah. It's a great song as well. Yeah. Which one of those moments do you want to make our contest? The Russian party for everybody with the grannies baking bread is possibly the one that I remember most fondly. But thinking about it, is that really a bit of an homage to the 2005 Moldova grandma banging the drum one? Well, I think so. I want to see grandmas doing interesting things on stage, so I'm going to go with 2005 and Moldova. Well, I'm glad you picked that. I like that song so much that I ordered the single uh, and it was shipped to me from Moldova. That is incredible. And some of the other mixes of it are really, really good. Nice. I'll have to borrow that from you sometime. You can, you can. Okay, and next we need a good interval act. Well, I have some excellent ones to pitch you. Okay. The standard that all interval acts are going to be compared to is, of course, river dance. That's an ongoing cultural phenomenon even to this day, right? It's been turned into a show that's been seen by over 25 million people. That is incredible. At Eurovision, it was performed in 1994. It was composed by Bill Whelan and featured Gene Butler and Michael Flatley. Right, yeah. And River Dance was seen as an evolution of Time Dance that was performed in 1981 when RTE had previously hosted the contest, and that depicted Irish music through the ages. And although the styles of River Dance and Time Dance are similar, it actually was more revolution than evolution. That's like me. I evolve, but I don't revolve. In this case, they did revolve. Right. So this was a huge cultural moment for the Republic of Ireland. It was like a massive cultural arriving on the world stage, wasn't it? A phenomenal moment in time. Absolutely. They took traditional Irish music, traditional Irish dancing, giving it this massive shot in the arm, brought it up to this incredible contemporary piece, and everybody fell in love with it. Yeah. This was the reaction in the hall. Good grief. That brought the folk memories out. Small hairs rising in the back of every Irish man's neck. Phenomenal. Every show is going to be compared to that. And indeed, in 2013, when our host, Petra Mirda, was first presenting, as part of her intro to the song contest, she used this line. And the interval act is your one big chance to fail to live up to Very knowing reference. Yes, so in 2013, she performed Swedish Smorgasbord. That was a comic showcase of Swedish culture and the behaviour of its people with references to all the winning Swedish songs. Right. As we've already heard, the Swedes have the ironic sense of humour. Here's an example lyric. I come from a country that's hard to find, somewhere near the icy pole. But though we're freezing, please bear in mind, Sweden's going to warm your soul. Nice. Our people are cold, but our elks are hot. (laughs) A horny horde in every fjord. Wow. Our moose may be loose, but they hit the spot. 
our Swedish smorgasbord. I'm less sure of, of, of that line, but okay. <laughs> but then it also featured the line, by winning this contest, you get the chance to host a show you can't afford. <laughs> no wonder the UK economy was struggling in the 70s with all the ones that we had to <laughs> Well, host. exactly. There was a nice little cameo in Swedish smorgasbord as well, where the 1991 winner got blown off the stage by an overpowered wind machine. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back to Brighton 1974. And who do you think would have been big enough to feature in the Interval Act? I don't know, Roxy Music, T-Rex, David Bowie? Mm, The Wombles. Oh, bloody Londoners muscling in on Brighton. So the Wombling song was played whilst the Wombles see the sights of the Brighton area and they travel by off-road vehicles and speedboat. (laughs) That's the 70s. But I tell you what happened in the 80s. 1989, we're in Switzerland. Oh yeah. And there's this act, Guy Tell. He's doing his namesake, William Tell. It's a crossbow act. A number of crossbows have been set up on stage. He fires the one he's holding, and this triggers all the others to fire in turn, with the last one aimed at the apple on his head. Oh, nice. Unfortunately, the bolt missed the apple. (laughs) It missed his head too, and it just went into the set. But then he picked the apple off his head, and they showed a close-up of the apple, which miraculously had the arrow (laughs) go straight through the centre. The magic of television. Yeah. Over the years, some big pop acts have performed. In 1997, we had Boyzone. At the absolute peak of their success in 1997. Absolutely. 2001, Aqua. Oh, yeah. 2016, Justin Timberlake. That's a huge star for Eurovision. Another one of the reasons why 2016 is seen as such a watershed year. JT did Rock Your Body and Can't Stop the Feeling. Excellent. 2019, Madonna was performing in Tel Aviv. She had some quite dodgy vocals on Like a Prayer and then performed a second song, a new song, Future, and it was just poor. I mean, nobody wants to hear your new material. No, the words that spread fear into all festival goers. Here's one from our new album. Yeah, and even more ridiculous at Eurovision. What was more notable was that her backing performers had Israeli and Palestinian flags attached to them. Right. They didn't have this in rehearsals. Oh. And the EBU was taken by surprise and said the contest is a non-political event and Madonna had been made aware of this. One of her representatives replied, a message of peace is not political. If you invite Madonna to perform at your song contest in Israel and don't expect her to make any reference at all to the ongoing Israel-Palestine issues, you're just naive. You are naive, yes. In 2016, Petra and Mons performed Love, Love, Peace, Peace. Right. This is a tongue-in-cheek guide to producing the winning Eurovision song. They referenced many moments from the past, and it's very funny. Well, we've already got Petra and Mons as our hosts. So it'd be cheap to get them to do the interval act. (laughs) It would be cheap, but I think we should probably choose something that's not by them. Okay. I'm not going to go with the Wombles. I'm not too interested in somebody shooting an arrow off somebody's head. Boyzone. I mean, if we were talking about Take That, you'd have a chance, but I'm not a big Boyzone person. Aqua. They're Mm. a lot of fun, but this is a few years after their peak, right? And nobody wants to be listening to Dr. Jones or Barbie Girl in 2001. Okay. So Madonna, those dodgy vocals are going to rule her out. Justin Timberlake, quite interesting and exciting, but I don't think we're going to find anything better or more momentous than Riverdance. So we're going to go for Riverdance. I'm going for Riverdance. A very good choice. 
The interval act precedes the voting sequence. Yes. And the voting needs to be overseen by an executive supervisor. Well, this is what we really need to decide, right? It's what our listeners are really interested in. And I'm going to spend the next 20 minutes going through all the executive supervisors who have ever done Eurovision. Please don't. Well, okay, but look, we've got to talk about Jon Ola Sand, a Norwegian TV exec. He held the role from 2011 to 2019. He was Mr. Integrity, and he even had a catchphrase. We are now ready to take this special journey around Europe, collecting the points. So, Alex and Lova, take it away. All I can say is, take it away. Mons and Petra, take it away. Take it away. Okay, he's in. I don't think we need to spend any more time pitching a list of Eurovision supervisors. We've gone with the best. It's Jon. I was looking forward to that segment, but we have picked the best. But we need to know which voting system Jon will be supervising. This is obviously another thing that's going to get our listeners excited. But in all seriousness, the tension of watching the results come in is quite possibly the best part of the show. Yeah, absolutely. And there were some changes made in the last few years that really made for a genuinely tense climax to the show. And we'll talk about that. But it might just be worth picking out some features of the voting systems over the years. Yeah. Between the start of the contest in 1956 and 1996, juries represented each country. The exact rules varied from year to year, but an interesting example is from 1971 to 1973, where two member juries represented each country and they scored every song from zero to five points. And it was all a bit blankety-blank years before blankety-blank started. The jurors were on a split level and they held up cards representing their scores. Oh, right, yeah. And the 1973 male juror from Switzerland was particularly flamboyant as he showed his approval with his scorecards, a kind of prototype Bruno Tognoli. <laughs> Love it. But what we'd see is the basis of the modern scoring system was introduced in 1975. Juries ranked the songs for their top song scoring 12 points, the second 10, and then the next scored between 8 and 1. That 12, 10, 8 to 1 has been there ever since. Yeah, that's what I would associate with it. It's sort of surprising to me that that hasn't always been the case. Yeah. As we mentioned earlier, televoting became the norm from 1998. Yeah. But this led to accusations of voting for neighbours. So is this when the thing comes in of Cyprus always voting for Greece and vice versa? Well, I think the juries had done that a bit. Right. But the phone votes did that even more. Terry Wogan complained of the block voting. And this just led to accusations of voting for neighbours. So from 2009, juries returned as they were meant to be more neutral. 50% of a country's vote came from the jury and the other 50% from the televote. Right, OK. I've already trailed the changes that happened in 2016. And this saw the jury and televotes announced separately. Yeah. First, the jury votes are announced. And that's done the traditional way of going round all the jury spokespersons. But then they aggregated the televote and they announced those separately. Yeah. And previously, it was often obvious who had won long before getting to the last country spokesperson. Yeah. But the new format brought the tension right down to the very last vote. And it is genuinely tense. It is super exciting in that format. The EBU claimed that it was just changing presentational style. But actually, just because of the way the maths work, in 2016, the contest would have been won by a different country had the results been combined first. Oh. Yeah, Australia would have won in 2016, but sadly for them, they didn't. Oh, fascinating. 2022 saw accusations of jury vote rigging, with Azerbaijan, Georgia, Montenegro, Poland, Romania and San Marino having their jury votes discarded. And the jury votes were replaced by a calculated vote 
based on countries with similar voting patterns. That's a bit dodgy. That's the official rule. Okay, right. And indeed, San Marino don't get a phone vote at all because the country's infrastructure isn't separate from Italy. So their phone vote has always been a calculated vote. Oh, right. Azerbaijan, Romania and Georgia refused to read out the replacement votes, leaving executive supervisor Martin Osterdahl having to blame technical problems and do it himself. Oh, well done, Martin. Sadly, you can't be our executive supervisor because we've already chosen Jan, but that's a pretty heroic undertaking. Absolutely. So this year, the jury vote has been scrapped from the semi-finals, although it has been retained 50-50 with the televote in the final. We should talk briefly about that moment where they go around the juries and we get various sort of TV presenters or other celebrities from each country reading out the votes from that country. Yeah. Sometimes you get people who are really trying to hog as much screen time as possible, don't you? You do, and then it's up to the host to move things along. Yeah, but it's incredibly frustrating when they're just like, Hi, welcome from my beautiful country on this fabulous Eurovision night. We hope you're all having a crazy time. We know we are too. So before we get to the juries, let me first say my first memories of Eurovision, which came from 1974. And just get on with it. It's just horrible. It's just like, mate, all right, I get that this is a big moment for you in front of millions of viewers, but nobody gives a shit. No. But we're not immune to it ourselves. Take a clearly pissed Amanda Holden from 2021. And incidentally, she's wearing what I can only describe as a dead swan. Good evening, bonsoir, goedenavond. That is good evening in French and Dutch, although I've got absolutely no idea which is which. (laughs) This is London calling. What a fantastic show this evening. I'm Amanda Holden. I love Eurovision. Okay. The drama, the excitement, and all the wildly over-the-top camp outfits. Wrap and it up, Amanda. Me. <laughs> but now, the exciting part. Our first votes are on the screen, and the oh, 12 points, 12 points from the United Kingdom goes to France! Yeah, that's a perfect example of people hogging the limelight. It's just awful. Yeah, terrible. So we need to choose a scoring system. Now, you're the real Eurovision expert around here, but will you agree that the post-2016 voting system that we've currently got is the best it's ever been? It's by far the best. It's just brilliant TV. Okay, that's decided then. In all honesty, I think for UK viewers at least, the single most important element of the Eurovision Song Contest is the commentator. No, I think that's fair, although I think the commentators are important in all countries. And actually in 2014, the hosts paid tribute to the commentators and they set off some pyrotechnics in front of the boxes as a surprise. The German commentator was just a little bit shocked. On an evening like this, it's important to thank everyone who's part of the show. And we've noticed there's one group of people was never ever been thanked before. Here sitzen wir hier oben und beobachten alles. Und jetzt geht's weiter. Auch noch fucking hell. Oh shit. Fucking hell. Oh shit. I love it that he's talking in German and then when he gets surprised he switches to English for a swear. Yes. Luckily in the UK our commentators are altogether more professional, taking Eurovision extremely seriously. Extremely seriously. I mean Terry Wogan did that commentating job for the UK for many decades, right? Really made that seat his own. 
Yes. But it's funny because obviously he wasn't from the United Kingdom. He was Irish, but he'd very much be on the side of the United Kingdom and talk about we and us. Yeah, he'd do that for Ireland as well. But he was obviously there supporting the UK, wanting the UK to win. And then that carried over with his successor being another Irishman, Graham Norton. Yeah. And then when semi-finals were introduced, Paddy O'Connell got that gig. Although, of course, now you've got Scott and Ryland doing the semi-finals. Yeah, but Terry Wogan and Graham Norton between them have commentated on Eurovision for over 40 years. And when it gets to song nine, Graham Norton raises a toast to Terry Wogan and invites everyone to celebrate Sir Terry. And why is that on song nine? Wogan would always start the show sober, but at song nine, he'd allow himself a glass of Baileys. Right, okay. (laughs) So we have to select our commentator and it's probably going to be Terry Wogan or Graham Norton, right? Yes. So would you like to play a little game to try and help decide which one it should be? Yes, please. This is Wogan or Norton. I'm going to read out a line of commentary and then you have to guess if it was said by Terry Wogan or Graham Norton. Okay. Who knows what hellish future lies ahead? Well, actually I do, because I've seen the rehearsals. Uh, I think that's going to be Terry Wogan. Let's find out. Who knows what hellish future lies ahead? Well, actually I do, because I've seen the rehearsals. Yeah, I was right, eh? Absolutely. Next up. Spain is next with a song called Bloody Mary. That reminds me, I haven't touched a drop yet so far. Only a matter of time. Well, I'm going to say that Wogan would know exactly when he's going to have his drink. It would be on song nine. So I'm going to say that this must be Graham Norton. Should have a listen? Yep. Spain is next. Song called Bloody Mary. That reminds me, I haven't touched a drop yet so far. Only a matter of time. It's Wogan. A little bit disingenuous there, Terry, but okay. Yeah. Next, the band's trademark is the headphones they're wearing. Not sure what they're listening to, but hopefully it's not this. Um, let's try Graham Norton. Is it Graham Norton? The band's trademark is the headphones they're wearing. Not sure what they're listening to, but hopefully it's not this. <laughs> yeah, I was right again. Now see if you can listen to this without being totally distracted by the two Egypts in raincoats. Well, I guess either Graham or Terry could say Egypts, but it sounds like a very Terry Wogan word. It does, doesn't it? See if you can listen to this without being totally distracted by the two Egypts in raincoats. Nice. It's actually quite a good song, but you may not notice as you'll be distracted by the, oh, let's call them dancers, that are on stage with him. At points, you'll think they've had a bad oyster, but truly, it's choreographed. (laughs) Truly, it's choreographed could only be Graham Norton. It's actually quite a good song, but you may not notice, because you'll be distracted by the, oh, let's call them dancers, that are on stage with him. At points, you will think they've had a bad oyster, but truly, it's choreographed. And 29 years since the Netherlands have won this contest. Make that 30. That sounds like the dry humour of Terry Wogan to me. 29 years since the Netherlands have won this contest. Make that 30. (laughs) So we need to choose our commentator. Is it going to be Wogan or Norton? Graham Norton has done a really excellent job of taking over what was an absolutely iconic role, and it must have been really difficult for him to step into that seat. Yes. He has made it his own. He seems very comfortable there. We're already at a stage where you think it'll be unimaginable to have Eurovision in the future without Graham Norton. Totally. But the role was really established by Terry Wogan. He perfected it. And I don't think the show would be anything like the experience it is today if Tell hadn't pioneered that style of commentating. So we're going to have to have Wogan, aren't we? No disrespect to Graham Norton, but it was never in doubt. Absolutely. 
Before I decide whether we're going to produce Eurovision, I'd better test you on your knowledge to ensure that you're a worthy Eurovision producer. Oh dear. Yeah, I mean, you are a Eurovision expert, so you're going to have to try to get at least some of these right if you're going to be able to hold your head up high in Eurovision circles. Yes, but there's more than 60 years' worth of random, obscure facts that you could have gone for. Exactly right. I mean, look, no one's going to expect you to get them all right. Let's just hope you get some. How many points did the UK award to ABBA for Waterloo in 1974? Famously, none. That is correct. That's wild, isn't it? I know. Incredible, isn't it? The Big Five qualify automatically for the final because they deliver loads of viewers and cash. Yes. But which countries are they? So it's the United Kingdom. Yep. Spain. Yep. France. Yep. Germany. Yep. And they were the Big Four, and then it was expanded to the Big Five when Italy came back to the contest. I like how you've done that, like one of the chasers or an egghead. Yes. The Soviet Union and the rest of the Eastern Bloc used to compete in their own song contest, but what was it called? Oh, oh, I have heard of it, but I can't remember. No, it's the Intervision Song Contest. Oh, of course. Portugal held the record for the most number of appearances in the contest without a win until they won in 2017. Yes. But how many appearances had they made before that? I don't know. Um, 55? 48. Oh. And finally... Ireland won the Eurovision Song Contest in four out of five years in the early to mid-90s. Can you name any one of those four songs? Um, I don't think it was What's Another Year. I think that was earlier. No. Yeah. Was something like Rock and Roll Kids? That's exactly right. Well done. Um, the other ones were Why Me, In Your Eyes and The Voice. Wow. Well done. Yeah, you've done well there. You've got three out of five possible points from the Eurovision quiz, and I think that's acceptable. Excellent. Okay, it's time for my decision. I'm going to examine this Frankenstein's monster of a Eurovision show that we put together and decide whether Cracking TV should take the risk of producing it at great expense. Okay. If I go for it, then you'll be able to fulfil your lifelong dream of producing Eurovision. If I don't go for it, then you have to get that UKIP tattoo. I was hoping you'd forgotten that bit. I'm afraid not. So let's look at what we've got. The UK song that's capable of winning, we're going with Making Your Mind Up by Bucks Fizz. Yeah. For the host city, we're going with Liverpool, untested, but, you know, I'm a scouser, so I'm excited enough by that. Yeah. For the presenters, we're going for Mons and Petra. Yeah. For our biggest boom banger banger, we're going with Euphoria. Absolutely. For our most memorable song, we're going with Waterloo. Yes. Song with strange staging is going to be 2005's Moldova Grandma Banging the Drum. Classic. Interval act is River Dance. What else? The executive supervisor is going to be Big Yon. That's the one everyone wants to know about. That's what they're coming for. Voting procedure is going to be the post-2016 votes. Yeah. Commentator is going to be Terry Wogan. Naturally. I mean, it's very tempting for me to say no to this because I don't want to take out a massive loan for us to produce a Eurovision show. And I would enjoy how humiliating it would be for you if I said no (laughs) and you had to leave here in disgrace and you'd have to get a UKIP tattoo. Yeah. It would be reasonably delicious from my perspective. (laughs) But as I list those elements of the Eurovision show, it just seems fantastic. I mean... Doesn't it? Who doesn't want to see that? It's the greatest show you can imagine. So, all right then, let's go for it. Let's produce Eurovision. You see? Serious? I'm absolutely serious, Luke. You're on. Let's do it. Come on. Oh, I was really worried then. You won't regret it. It's going to be amazing. We better get on with it. There's no time to waste. Cracking TV was produced and presented by me, John Furlong, and him, Luke Sluman. 
Our rather marvellous theme tune was written and performed by Simon McInerney. Luke and John Cracking TV is an iHog Factual Entertainment production. It's time to change the channel to Luke and John Cracking TV. Luke and John Cracking TV. 